Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, as we start this new book, we realize that all 66 books are inspired by the Holy Spirit. As the Apostle Paul would put it, they are God-breathed. There's a sense where we are inhaling what you have exhaled. You have exhaled truth. And now as we take in your word, we're inhaling what's here and wanting it to make its way through all parts of our lives. And in this inhaling experience that we are part of at this moment, we're asking that you would meet us at our point of need. No matter what our current experience is or state of life is. Make it relevant. Make it practical. While we seek to be true to your text. So in these moments together, we pray that you would warm these hearts. Engage these minds. And shape these wills. Again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only, praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. D.L. Moody was asked, what was one of the greatest highlights of his evangelistic efforts through the course of his years of ministry? And high on the list, if not at the very top, was his telling story of the time period of 1893 when the world's Columbian Exposition was being held in Chicago. Now remember this was the pre-automobile era, yet over 21 million people, it's estimated, visited the exhibits there. Chicago had grown since its fire the Chicago Fire of 1873, and now want to show itself off to the rest of the world, and the show was good, we're told. And among the features there was what was known as and billed as the World Parliament of Religions. This was now the Darwinian era, and as Charles Darwin's writings were beginning to influence not only writings in the realm of science, they were also impacting the way in which people were engaged in so-called religion. And so representatives of world religions gathered together and hoped to be able to present their new ideas to the American public and beyond. Now, D.L. Moody saw this as a tremendous opportunity for evangelism And so he organized evangelists and positioned them to be at various spots at corners across the greater city of Chicago, using as well both church facilities and theaters to expound the gospel of Jesus Christ. But his friends warned him and challenged him. They wanted him to attack the parliament of religion to simply knock the people that were involved in representing false religiosity throughout the world. And Moody said, no. Instead, what I am going to do is to make Jesus Christ so attractive 
and to make Jesus Christ so preeminent that men and women alike will be drawn to him and to no other. He did. They did. And the Chicago campaign of 1893 is considered to be one of the greatest evangelistic works in Moody's long and highly recognized evangelistic ministry. Don't you love the way that he made the focus positively centered upon Jesus Christ? Which is exactly now what John, the Apostle John, is doing in First John. He is making Jesus Christ preeminent and Jesus Christ central to all things, to all peoples. Now, he is probably around 90 years of age. He is, in essence, last man standing. The other apostles have gone home to be with the Lord. Jerusalem has fallen to the Roman troops. The believers have been scattered globally. Now, by the perspective of the secular eyes, you would think then that things were not working out well for Christianity. But you see, three days later, God had raised Jesus from the dead, had commissioned his disciples to go into the world to communicate the gospel, and even used persecution as a means of scattering his people so that they would take the good news of Jesus with them wherever they went. And these people being scattered would have been equipped by those who had been gathered around the cross of Jesus Christ and had been able to witness the words and the work of their Savior. We're going to ponder now in these four opening verses known as the prologue, the words and the work of this Savior We're going to focus upon Jesus this morning and bring out two significant challenges that we find here that relate to 2017 living. And the first is out of one and two. And we're going to put it like this. The number one, as we focus upon Jesus Christ, I want you to note with me what has been established historically. What's been established historically And it begins where it begins, in this opening phrase, that which was from the beginning. C.H. Dodd interprets the opening phrase in this way, of what has always been true about the word of life. That what the Apostle John is doing at this point is not introducing any innovation which was exactly what John was having to confront in that time period of A.D. 85 to 95, but rather settled truth, the unchanged original content of the gospel over against novel forms of doctrine, that which was from the beginning. Now, you musicians would appreciate this. 
that in his biography, when Lloyd Douglas, author of The Robe and other novels, was a university student, we're told that he lived in a boarding house, and downstairs on the first floor was an elderly retired music teacher, unable to leave the apartment. Douglas said that every morning, every morning, they had a ritual they'd go through together. He would come down the steps, open the old man's door, and ask, well, what's the good news? And the elderly musician would pick up his tuning fork, Tap it on the side of his wheelchair and say, that's middle C. It was the middle C yesterday. It will be the middle C tomorrow. It will be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs, she sings flat. The piano across the hall, It's out of tune. But my friend, that is middle C. Now what this elderly man had discovered is the one thing upon which he could depend. The one constant in his reality. What I might call here the still point in his ever-changing world. Question. Is Jesus your still point in this ever-changing world of yours? Where you might find yourself financially challenged. Well, your family might have faced medical difficulties beyond imagination. Yet through it all, you have found your middle sea, Christ. There is a flux around John, change in the midst as time has gone on and the apostles one by one have gone home to be with the Lord. Last man standing. He needs the changeless truth in his changing times. A highly impactful individual, a highly impactful church, understands how to communicate changeless truths in the midst of changing times, can expound deeply and practically the changeless truth, and understands by analyzing the current events, the changing times, and relates one to the other. You got a middle C in your life? Your still point? John did. Now, off to the side, what you're going to want to do is to write John chapter 1, verse 1, because his middle C seems to be constant in his writings. In the beginning was the Word. 
He loves that idea of starting off with beginnings. His beginning is the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Again in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he's connecting beginnings to this one he calls the Word. And not only in the Gospel of John, but the Apostle who also pens now the Epistle of John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, sound familiar? You just covered John 1, 1. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now you begin to process that in the change of your life your constancy. And what he wants to do now is to introduce to you, not once, twice, three times, in four different ways, what I'm going to call, what we will call this morning, sensory verbs. Sensory verbs that equip you and me to understand that this was more than simply an idea the apostles came up with. Rather, this is a person who three days later... God raised up. And the evidence here stands out in the way in which this apostle now continues to use sensory verbs to describe his relationship to the one before and after the cross was so impactful upon his life. Now notice the historical evidence where we are taken from eternity past that which was from the beginning into the Bethlehem onward to Calvary's story, which we, number one, here's your first sensory verb that marches out toward you. We have heard. Now, John the Baptist, who is the Apostle John's mentor early on in his life, equipped the Apostle John with the with the ability to hear. Where he looked at Jesus, John the Baptist did, with the Apostle John and others that the Baptist was discipling, pointed in Christ's direction and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now that would speak volume. That would speak volumes to people who knew their Older Testament and the significance of lambs in the sacrificial system of what this Lamb of God's mission would be all about. It would speak volumes to shepherds in the fields at night tending to their flocks when one born in Bethlehem would enter into this road to die at Calvary. But we've heard John the Baptist was equipping, you see, what we will later call the Apostle John for what would take place at his fishing industry. Or in Matthew 4, verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, speaking of Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, their fishermen. We get that. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. What is the reaction to the word of Christ? 
No delay. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Question. What is it right now among your experiences and possessions that you've got to let go of to effectively and thoroughly follow Christ? To reiterate, in verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and here he is, John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee. Their father mending their nets, and he called them. So now here is this elderly John, penning fish John, who would have the capacity to recall the opening words by his Savior, who would three days later be raised from the dead. And he too immediately left the boat. And his father followed him. The words of Jesus. He bookends it, doesn't he? Because there would come a point when Jesus, on that cross, at the end of the book of John, will look down at his mother and say, Woman, behold your son. And then he would say to the disciple, who was the apostle John, Behold your mother. And then we're told, from that hour, the disciple, speaking of John, took her to his own home. And can you imagine the rich, the rich stories that Mary would share with the Apostle John with regard to this second member of the Trinity that had initially been placed in her womb and she had raised. Don't underestimate the proximity, not only of the beloved one, John, to Jesus, but also the proximity of John to Jesus' mother, Mary, who he took into his home. She continues to bring Middle Sea in her conversations, into his life experience. And he brings Middle Sea to his readership, which we have heard. I heard him at the beginning when he called me, and I left to follow him. I heard him on that cross when he entrusted his mother to me to be responsible for her care. And there was an immediacy about the way in which he responds to the word of Jesus. How about for you? There's your first sensory verb. But notice it not merely said, heard, it says, we have heard. It's in the plural. Which means then this would stand up in a legal court when it comes to evidence regarding the claims of Jesus Christ and the historicity of who Christ is. Because throughout your Old Testament, the writer of Deuteronomy would challenge people that in a court of law, there must be more than one witness. 
Now utilize the number of we's here in this opening verse as you consider the historical evidence for who Christ is and what Christ has done. So your first, your first sensory verb here that stands out is heard, have heard. If you had a Greek teacher here sitting with you, he or she would say, well, that's perfect tense. In other words, it involves a completed action in the past that has ongoing impact in the present. And here he is, 90 years of age. And this matter of Jesus that John is bearing witness to, his experience, his eyewitness account of the past, is having an ongoing impact upon, upon John in the present. Is Jesus doing that for you right now? In the way in which you raise children or in the way in which you go about living your life, the way you handle your relationships at work or in your neighborhood, the way you manage your private life where there is this, uh, this, this, in, this initial act of the past that is having this ongoing impact, even in 2017 present. Well, he's not finished with you, is he? Because he's got a second sensory verb coming your way. Not only does he use the we with the we have heard, but now he couples the hearing with the seeing, which we, not I, we have seen, and then would add, with our eyes. And again, he's in perfect tense. Past completed action, present ongoing impact, and he's pondering the visual experiences that God, through the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, has offered him, as probably now with a smile on his face, he thinks about the time that he beat Peter to the tomb. You see, they had been informed the tomb was empty. Mary Magdalene had gone to Simon Peter and John and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb and both of them were running together. But the other disciple, this is John, love this. Loved his track skills. The other disciple outran Peter. Reached the tomb first. But he's humble enough, you see, so he just calls himself the other disciple. But ponder the visuals. And stooping in to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then in John chapter 20, verse 6, remember the Apostle John, Gospel of John, Epistle of John. Then Simon Peter came, following him, went into the tomb. He did what? Saw the linen, the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, he's got to keep reminding us of that, you know. Also went in, think visual, he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise. He must rise from the dead. Now you take all that visual work here and you're working 
the Gospel of John, with the Epistle of John, and you're recalling now the experiences of John, which we have heard, number one, which we have seen with our eyes, number two, and he didn't do it alone. He did it with Peter, which we looked upon, number three. And the phrase looked upon is a long-searching gaze, theomai in the original language. Very same word which is used in John chapter 1, verse 14. Behold, a dramatic sense of look. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen, or in some of your translations, beheld his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And there would be John with Peter and James on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there's this sense here of looking at intensely Jesus on that mount. He takes this middle sea with him a little further still. And then says, not only which we looked upon, but adds and have touched with our hands. And he was watching Thomas in that upper room. The hands. And there was Thomas, who obviously had not been there when people had been told that Jesus had been with them after having died on that cross. And Thomas, one of the twelve, described where? In the Gospel of John. He's, he's a twin. Not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. He loves the visuals. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. So you got eight days later matter on your hands here. His disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came, stood among them. He's going to have some fun now with Thomas. Has he ever had fun with you? Oh, Jesus came, stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he singles Thomas out. Doesn't ask, now which of you said this? He said to Thomas, put your finger here. There's the touch. See my hands. You see the sensory approach? The visual, the audio, the physical. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. The result of this whole matter of the observation of the hand inside, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And now, projecting far beyond Thomas. It's as if he's saying to us in 2017, have you believed because you've seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. As he deals with the matter of the hand of Thomas. And John now, as he's writing to new incoming believers and processing the eyewitness account historically of this risen Savior, he has something to say to us, something that probably impacted a physician by the name of Paul Brand as well. Because Paul Brand did hand surgery as he worked among leper patients in India. And the biographer tells us to all these people that he ministered among, he was their beloved physician, and always asked to get up and speak in their worship services. And one day, as he rose to his feet, because they asked him to share new perspectives, he became suddenly conscious of hands. Dozens of them. Lepers' hands. Disfigured hands. Many raised palm and palm in the familiar gesture of the Namasta of India. Some arched in the shape of claws with their fingers gone. Some all five fingers. Some with a few stumps. Some half hidden to cover their disfigurement. Hands. If only those who reach out could touch and hold hands. So Brand began simply by reminding them that he was a hand surgeon. When I meet people, I can't help looking at their hands. I examine your hand, I can tell your past, I can tell what your trade has been by the position of the calluses and the condition of the nails. I can even tell you a lot about your character. I'm a physician of hands. And then he asked, and have you considered the hands of Jesus? And beginning with the way in which he was held in the hands of Joseph and Mary, until through the years he developed the calloused hands as a carpenter, until he would reach the point where he would allow a Thomas to examine his hands. And then there was the physical aspect of touch, where there the Apostle John is now recalling the experience in the upper room, the one-on-one, Thomas and Jesus. Beginning with his boyhood, continuing on through his years as a carpenter, as a teacher, as a healer, and finally as the crucified Lord, the biographer tells us, Brand movingly shared the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus through a study of Jesus' hands. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And now you see the explosive sensory verbal teachings. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
audio, which we have seen with our eyes visual, which we have looked upon and touched physical with our hands. And you're not surprised by what comes next. Because you're linking the gospel of John to the epistle of John. Concerning the word of life. And now once again you write off to your side. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And now you linked at the first John, that which was from the beginning, and then you scoop down to the end of verse 1 concerning the word of life. And then you add John chapter 1 verse 14 next to 1 John chapter 1 verse 1, and the word became flesh. Ah, uh, yeah, Thomas. You examined it. And the nail prints. And dwelt among us. And now you can almost imagine as the apostle there in his elderly years, is recalling how he, how he had pondered and seen Christ's glory, even on that Mount of Transfiguration, concerning the word of life. All right. We've made it through one verse. Verse 2. Make the hyphen. He doesn't want you to let go of that idea of the word of life. And he wants you to link it to what you saw in John chapter 1, verse 1, as well as verse 14. And you don't let go of it because you hyphenate it and go into verse 2, the life. The life was made manifest. Now this is very important to him. This word manifested means to reveal or to make what was hidden. So what God has done via Bethlehem is that he has incarnated the second member of the Trinity and now we are able to ponder the relationship of the pre-existence of Jesus Christ as it relates to the Bethlehem onward to Calvary, to resurrection of Jesus Christ. And understand even more so the significance of this phrase, the life was made manifest. What God is doing at this point is that he's allowing you and allowing me to be able to get a real sense of the revealed Jesus, who he is, using all the various sensory aspects available to them to establish credibility regarding who Christ truly is. Eyewitnesses, last man standing, John is. The apostles are dying. He's left to tell. And he does. He uses the word we again. So it would stand up in a court, we've seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was made, which was with the Father, and was made, and there is that word for the second time now in verse 2, 
manifest to us. Now, when a writer utilizes a word more than once, remember, in the Bible, repetition is God's means of getting our attention. Repetition and attention are meant to be wedded together. It's very important that he uses this word to describe the way in which God is being revealed in the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, manifested, made clear what was previously hidden. It was the 1990s. He was a deputy sheriff. And Lloyd Prescott was teaching a class for police officers in the Salt Lake City Library. And as he stepped into the hallway, he noticed a gunman herding 18 hostages into the next room. And with a flash of insight, Prescott, dressed in street clothes, joined the group as the 19th hostage, followed them into the room, shut the door. And when the gunman announced the order in which the hostages would be executed, then Prescott revealed himself, or what the Apostle John might say, manifested himself as a cop. And in the scuffle that followed, Prescott in self-defense fatally shot the armed man And the hostages were released unharmed. Application time. It's as if God dressed himself in street clothes. Entered our world. Joining us who are held hostage to sin. And sin's penalty. And on the cross Jesus defeated the evil one. Set us free. Three days later, raised from the dead. And now through the audio. And now through the visual. And now through the physical. Using extrasensory evidence. Allows us to consider the historical fact. That Jesus Christ, who came to die for our sins. Raised from the dead. Is our Savior. And our Lord, as we focus upon Jesus Christ, we note what has first been established historically. And once we nail that one down, only then are we ready for verses 3 and 4. Because secondly, as we focus upon Jesus Christ, note what should be experienced relationally. Disconnect 1 and 2 from 3 and 4. And you're left with a secularist saying to you, well, that's your experience. I've got my experience. And who's to say your experience is better than my experience? But when you have got a risen Savior on your hands that has been evaluated audibly, visually, physically, manifested himself to eyewitnesses. Now you wed together the historical evidence of 1 and 2 with the relational experience of verses 3 and 4. You say, I've got a basis then 
to be able to say, I've got a relationship to God through Jesus. My faith is not based upon my experience. My, my faith is based upon the evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead. So my experience is based upon my evidence. So out of this, then, I want you to notice two that's, the THs. That which we have seen, heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. Now John would remember the golden era in Jerusalem. The teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayer and the rich fellowship that people had with one another. It comes from a Greek word, we know it, koinonia. It means two things. Sharing something with someone. Secondly, sharing in something with someone but definitely a sharing. What fascinates us is that this sharing, this fellowship, this koinonia, is described in this way, so that you too may have fellowship koinonia with us, and indeed our koinonia is, now circle the two withs, with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship with us, that's highly horizontal with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, that's highly vertical. And now you've got vertical and horizontal in your experience based upon Christ's evidence that propels you forward in this chaotic world that's looking for a middle sea. You see. Now, koinonia is from which we get the word coin. Some us have coins in our pocket. If you feel as though you've been so isolated spiritually and out of the loop and wondering how to get connected with fellow believers, remember, coins are meant to be in circulation. Christians are meant to be in circulation with one another. We don't just simply become coin collectors and put them in some setting in our house. Coins are meant to be in circulation. Even in his elderly years, the Apostle John astoundingly is in circulation, not isolation, until he'll be placed on the Isle of Patmos. Not by choice. But through it all, he gives you and he gives me both a horizontal and a vertical understanding of how to do a life group, how to do an adult Bible fellowship, how to do a, a worship team experience relationally, where you keep both the horizontal and the vertical connected in a way that brings glory to God's name. And he says, I've got a that for you so that you can have fellowship. But there's one more of that. We're in verse 4. We are writing these things 
so that our joy may be complete. And now when you've wedded the evidential of one and two, historically, with the experiential of verses three and four, relationally, it all comes together for you as you bring your middle C into the turmoil of life. And how do you do that? Notice he says we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And the word joy, the joy of our Lord, and our Lord is our strength. Again, it's a gift from God. It's not a fleeting emotion. It involves a deep sense of God's presence. It's an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. And it's part of what J.I. Packer would call the creation of large souls. Because even when your body begins to shrink in size in a diminished state like the Apostle John's might have by that point in time, he has such an enlarged soul holding all this together. So that you have fellowship, you're in circulation so that you have joy. And you've done the vertical and the horizontal. And the historical and the relational. And sometimes we find people experiencing joy in the most unexpected settings. I was reading up on some sports history in Wisconsin because Christians love sports, you see. And on a balmy October afternoon, sports history here in Wisconsin, Badger Stadium, Madison, place packed, more than 60,000 diehards watching their football team take on MSU, Michigan State University, they're the Spartans, Big Ten. It became obvious that day that MSU had the better team out on the field. What seemed odd, the writer put it, however, as the score became more lopsided, there were bursts of applause and shouts of, and I marked this, joy. Joy from the Wisconsin fans. How could they cheer when everything was going against them? It turns out that 70 miles away, the Milwaukee Brewers were beating the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 3 of the 1982 World Series. Many of the fans in the stands were tracking and became clear that the Brewers would win, began to stand and applaud. And there was such a movement of response of joy throughout the stands, it could take your breath away, the writer put it. And I think about all of those who have faced these challenges in hospital rooms, been confronted with unemployment, dealt with incredible family issues, and looking for middle C. And life seems so out of tune. And then Jesus steps in and brings the historical and the relational, the vertical and horizontal together for you and wants you to seriously embrace keeping him central to your life, like John did. 
And as you do so, in the midst of changing times, you've got your changeless middle C. Christ. Let's stand together. Father, from the eternal perspective, I know we've barely scratched the surface of these four verses. And you're probably looking down and saying, but you could have also covered this, this, and this. But Father, in the time that you've given us in this second period of worship today to consider your word, we thank you that Jesus broke into time fullness of time. You've given us evidential understanding of who he is, what he's done, and the relational dynamic to relate to you and to relate to believers so that we can continue to move forward in the changing times we're in with the changeless Savior who three days later was raised from the dead. We praise you. You've given us a still point in a noisy, turbulent world, a still point, a middle sea, the one who is yesterday, today, and tomorrow, Jesus. And for this we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.